0: Hello, my name is Sean Peterbudge, I'm here, if that score hasn't clued you in, to talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife, the latest in a growing and seemingly never-ending production line of remakes and reboots. Ghostbusters Afterlife is a direct sequel to Ghostbusters, more than it is, say, even Ghostbusters 2, and it's in so much a kind of an extension of a weird phenomenon where belated sequels are made that almost say, I'm actually... A sequel to the first one, not really the second one, um, which is always sort of strange when these films come out and they're like, there might have been two and three and four sequels, but this, they pick and choose what they're actually following on from. And it doesn't, this film in no way sort of disregards Ghostbusters 2, but it is absolutely an homage and, um, you know, a tribute, if you will, to. The first one, the 1984 Ghostbusters, certainly more than it is. Um, it's 1989, I think, the second one came out, uh, sequel. So, directed by Jason Reitman, the son of legendary director Ivan Reitman and a very credible filmmaker in his own right. Um, Ivan obviously directed the first two Ghostbusters films and had a great relationship you know, with that Ghostbusters crew over many, many years. Um, and this new film really, if nothing else seeks to kick start a troubled IP by blending old and new, both in terms of the story and the cast, to establish a brave new world of ghost traps, proton packs, and paranormal threats. Um, we'll sort of kick off, as we have in the last couple of episodes, with the plot, first and foremost. Um, Do bear with me. <laughs> uh, 37 years following the events of the first Ghostbusters film, this second incontinuity sequel takes us to the small and seemingly unremarkable Midwestern town of Somerville, Oklahoma. The town has long been a curiosity to locals and scientists, for despite being near no tectonic plates or volcanoes, it is regularly affected by tremors and seismic activity. It is this that brought Egon Spengler to town who, of course, having uh, done some research after their brush with Goza in the first movie, had determined Somerville to be an area of heightened paranormal significance. The how and why is explained by the presence of Ivo Shandor, the leader of the cult of Goza and the architect of 550 Central Park West. The tremors aren't earthquakes? They're actually evil spirits trying to escape a bottomless void of death and despair. You see, long since deceased... Shandor had established a mining concern in the region, which is actually a kind of front for a second temple of Goza. Are you keeping up? Shandor's objective hasn't changed. He wants to bring Goza into our dimension to wreak havoc. And likewise, subduing Goza and keeping the nefarious dimension-hopping deity at bay has become more than Egon's, <coughs> Egon's obsession. It has become his duty. At the cost of seemingly every meaningful relationship in his life, and ultimately the cost of his own life, Egon has waged war against the evil entity and its hounds of hell to keep the world safe. It is this inciting incident, Egon's death, that brings his family to town including an estranged daughter and the grandchildren he never knew. What follows is a period of discovery as a new cast of potential and unwitting heroes are introduced to the idea of legacy and of course, answering the call. So that is sort of, uh, as best we can, the setup really. I kind of want to um, stray as much as we can from kind of doing a beat-by-beat beat summary of the plot, but basically <coughs> Egon has arrived in Somerville sometime before the events of this film and set up shop um, in, a man, in a manner to subdue Gozer. Um The heart of this question is, of course, not who is Gozer. We know who Gozer is. Gozer is the sort of uh, David Bowie... Um, what's that term? The... Um, Oh no! I've forgotten the word. Um, he's the sort of androgynous figure, the the interdimensional evil at the end of the first film, who you know takes on the form of the stay-puffed marshmallow man. Um, has its hounds of hell alongside it, helping out. Um, you know, taking over people's bodies, turning them into key masters and gatekeepers. That's Goza. So Evo Shandor is is sort of the. The question mark here, because for the vast majority of people who just like the first Ghostbusters as a movie, or obviously familiar with the property and willing and ready to see a new movie, why do they care about the name Evo Shandor? This is a man whose name has really over ev- only ever been mentioned, um, featured somewhat in the in the Ghostbusters video game in 2009 as sort of the primary antagonist, but. Who is Evo Shandor, and why should you care about him, are two questions that are absolutely central to your understanding of or appreciation of this film. Because, like, he is, albeit fairly central, he is a pretty peripheral character in the whole property, which is sort of weird, because apart from the video game, he's actually never been on screen. He's basically a guy who spent most of his life loyal to the being Gozer, and has tried to facilitate their appearance in our world. In the first film that is explained, you know, by the building, five hundred and fifty Central Park West, which is Dana Barrett and Lewis Tully's apartment building, on which sits sort of this big paranormal antenna, which Gozer is built specifically for, you know, summoning sorry, um, Shandor is built specifically for summoning Gozer into our world. Sort of you know, there's the temple on top of it. Um but yeah, he he built it in such a way as an architect that would, it would be a lightning rod for these paranormal beings, particularly the one that he obviously um, worshipped. Like, it's interesting lore, like, no question about it. It's, it's interesting stuff. But it's not like the general population has any idea as to why they should care about this character. And more importantly, sort of jumping ahead a little bit, it's actually a really good example of all that stuff works as exposition. In the first movie, this guy is long since dead. he was loyal to the being Goza who was like a Sumerian god worshipped by, as a god in certain different cultures, this inter- interdimensional being. he was the head of the snake, head of the cult of Goza that was central to any efforts or any attempts um, that the being would have to enter our world. We didn't need to meet him, we didn't need a flashback backstory we didn't the character is perfectly formed and functions perfectly as intended by just being an off-screen presence, by being like a, a tool of exposition. So it sort of speaks to the way that films are made these days that you go back and you think, we're going to make a sequel to Ghostbusters. Okay, what do we do? You know, uh, What what story can we tell? We haven't met Evo Shandle. We can do Evo... And you're like, you don't need to do... Mm, yeah, I don't know about that. We can do Gozo, but we can do it... I don't know if you should do it that way. But it's what we have now, it's what they do, we spoke about it with Boba Fett, we have Max Rebo, and you're like, yeah, okay, all right. How how much it bothers you is obviously not going to necessarily ruin the film, but it is just an interesting interesting tack for them to take, to kind of go, you know, this guy that was sort of mentioned offhand a few times and wasn't really central to the first film succeeding, well, we're going to bring him back in such a way that he's again central to this film. You're kind of like, oh, yeah, I suppose... Do you have to do that? Can you not just make a new movie? And therein lies the big question. Can you not just make a new movie? Because ultimately, the big thing walking out of this film, as it is walking out of any movie, was it any good? Is it a good film? And, look, Ghostbusters Afterlife isn't a bad film, but it's not particularly good either. It exists sort of comfortably in the middle of that critical spectrum. And to be fair, it is very carefully constructed and very deliberately curated to do so. And what I'm about to say isn't a criticism of this film on its own. It's an observation about Hollywood filmmaking, full stop, for the last... It's been going on for a while, but sort of 10-odd years really particularly. Um, Because it's not like a new phenomenon, but I'm sure we've all observed it. This film isn't good or bad, because it doesn't dare to be good or bad. It doesn't dare to take that risk. And I, I will like I'll never criticize a film. You can be disappointed in a film, or you can think a film is not sort of particularly good as such. I'm really loath to criticize a film that takes a risk, either, you know, with a with a property that might not be known by many many people, or you know, an idea like something like a Scott Pilgrim versus the World. This Edgar Wright film. It's like made what twenty ten I think it was. Yeah, it's based on a comic book that's relatively well-known in comic circles but certainly doesn't have any mainstream recognition. And you've got a guy like Michael Cera as the lead who, again, people know is kind of like, oh, he's in Arrested Development and he's been in a couple of movies at that point, like a super bad. We're going to have him help lead the film and it's going to be a really unorthodox, kind of like um, tentpole movie. We're going to put a bit of money into it and it's going to be really stylistically and visually different fun it doesn't really work it didn't really go all that well but it's an excellent film because they took a bit of a risk they took this property that geez it might work it might not work it's a good idea it's a good story we can bring it to to the screen in a in a really new and fun way energetic you know pulpy and they did but it just didn't find an audience and it just didn't do too well so that's a risk Universal made that film, to come out and go, all right, let's swing for the fences on this and see if we've got anything from it. And, while they made a brilliant film, just didn't make a lot of money. So in this case, and in the case of a lot of other movies, we don't need to go over them, this is a Ghostbusters film, made to feel and be as familiar as possible, to tick as many boxes that the audience expects it to tick as possible. It is, like so many other films these days, that are... Trotting out a well-worn, well-known, um, very visible property that might have been on the rack for whatever reason—it's checklist filmmaking at the expense of risk, because risk is risky. Filmmakers and producers are given a hundred-plus million dollars, and they're asked to turn that into three hundred and fifty million dollars—you know, hopefully more—but they're asked to not come back with less than we gave you, break even is the worst-case scenario. For the love of God, if you do nothing else, you could make the best film that's ever been made, but if it doesn't make money, no one wins. You know, Art, it's not what we're really trying to make, but we're trying to make money. George Lucas has spoken about that, about this idea of they give filmmakers X number of dollars and they send them to the roulette wheel, and they basically say, can you double it? Just bet on red, bet on black. We don't care, but can you double the money we've given you? And in this day and age, more than pretty much any other, you know, audiences are so, so fickle. You know, their attention spans are so fleeting. They live and die on first impressions, and you know, reviews are churned out immediately following the first press screening, and they're synthesized into you know, 280 characters on Twitter. And then worse, the opening screenings on a weekend, you know, if your Friday doesn't track well, panic stations. If Saturday is the same... You know, by Sunday, studios are figuring out how best and to be honest, most expeditiously, to cut their losses. That's how brutal it is. I remember seeing a thing about years ago would have been in two thousand and one, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes remake, which again was like not an offensively bad movie. It wasn't particularly interesting, but like it wasn't horrendously bad, and particularly when the originals are they're just good ideas, they're not necessarily good movies kind of like I'm actually getting sidetracked within a sidebar. sort of like when Steven Soderbergh and, you know, Brad Pitt, George Clooney, etc., when they remade um, Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Eleven was known because it had the Rat Pack in it, and the Rat Pack used to make these shitty movies in, you know, a couple of weeks. And they were just vehicles for their their songs and their performances, and they were relatively cheap to make. They would make reasonable money because not a lot of films are being made, and they're big-name performers – and someone asked George Clooney on the on the red carpet, Oh, did you feel any pressure, you know, remaking this really celebrated, you know, iconic property, you know, Oceans Eleven was Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., etc. And Clooney kind of cheekily, but he sort of deadpan back. He goes, Have you seen the original film? It's terrible. Cause it is, it's bad. It's not a good movie. It's a good idea that they just didn't care enough about to pay it enough respect, to make it good. So there's this idea that you know, in the case of um, Planet of the Apes, same sort of thing. We're going to remake this film because this film's got a bit of cachet. People know what it is. It's a great idea. We can make it now with modern technology, and we can fix up some of the or effects and the makeup and all that. And it came out, and by like Saturday night, they realized, oh, no, this isn't. This isn't going to make the money we kind of needed it to, or budgeted. it two and immediately then all the plans all the follow-ups all the sequels anything that was to come after is done now this hasn't worked and i remember tim burton you know similarly telling the story to whatever the number it had done on friday or on its weekend you know 50 million or whatever it was was bad and when it's done 50 and they've gone ah it's not good is it all right, well, we probably should stop thinking about the sequel because we're not getting a sequel with those numbers. So you've got these opening weekends that, at, by the end of them, we kind of know what's happening. Are we moving forward? Are we making more? And the truth is, you know, a lot of these studios, if the films don't work, they've probably got an inkling that they're in a bit of trouble sometime out. You know, but once the train leaves the station, there's very, very little that can be done to slow it down, let alone stop it. You think about a film like um, John Carter, <clears throat> or John Carter of Mars, is what it should have been called. It's one of the most interesting botched or bombed um, marketing programs in history, that film, Disney, had sort of made it as a bit of a thank you to, fuck, was it Andrew Stanton? I'm just trying to think, the director. So basically, once again getting sidetracked, John Carter was this... Rosetta Stone property that all of these other adventure pulp serials had kind of spawned from this Edgar Rice Burroughs tes- text that had never been properly you know, adapted. And then they eventually do it in like, what was it, 2012, I think it was? After heaps of failed attempts to get it off the ground, Favreau was going to do one and all these different directors were going to do these Barsoom series of novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs. But when it eventually comes to the screen bearing in mind at this point in time during the, the actual producing and getting it off the ground time frame Disney were looking for what was next because Pirates of the Caribbean had sort of wrapped up they didn't really have any big properties big franchises they tried to do Tron it didn't work they were sort of looking for they tried to do The Lone Ranger they were doing that forever with Gore Verbinski. Just didn't they couldn't find their next property their next franchise what's our next big meal ticket so they sort of went oh John Carter okay and they gave the directing duties to a guy who'd done a mountain of great work at Pixar as a bit of a thank you. And the film isn't bad, like by any means. The film is not bad. But what became apparent was We're actually gonna buy Marvel. We've actually we've done a deal to buy Marvel. So we're gonna start making those there, potentially our next <coughs> our next big franchise thing. Fantastic. They bought Star Wars. So they thought we're putting so much time, so much money into these Marvel, Star Wars. These are going to be what drives us forward. We're going to do a film a year. You know, Marvel are going to have two and three films a year. Star Wars are going to have a film a year. We actually don't need John Carter to be to be successful. So they kind of tanked it. Is is the long-haired allegation? They kind of tanked all the marketing. They tanked the big launch because they actually didn't want John Carter to succeed. They didn't want John Carter to be a $750, $800 eight hundred million dollar plus movie because if it was. There'd be an appetite for a sequel, which they'd probably be duty-bound to made to make. Sorry, there're probably triggers in people's contracts that if it makes this much money, I get a whatever. And they just figured, tank it. It's cost 250 mil to make however much more. Tank it. Move on. We're going to make all that up and more with the other properties that we've since invested in. And you could almost say the same for com- like the Lone Ranger, which was out in like 2013, I think, where they were like, we actually don't need this to be good. We don't need this to be another Pirates of the Caribbean just move on from it, we've got other properties, we're going to focus on those. So, <clears throat> I mean, on the inverse of that, with something when they're trying to save a film that's no good, which does happen from time to time, they can they can try to do it. Like, one of the consequences of advances in filmmaking techniques um, is, is the volume <clears throat> of a film that can be altered or changed or reshot entirely. I mean, if you shoot in front of a green screen... You can decide where you need that scene to be later on. We can shoot a scene today. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're going to be on the basketball court. I'm not sure if you're going to be outside the gym. I'm not sure if you're going to be in the office. We can do that later. For continuity's sake, we can figure out what serves the scene best. We don't have to build the set again if we want to reshoot it. So you can do so much more than you used to be able to do. The the pickups that you used to do used to be very minimal because they could only be, it was so costly to rebuild a set. Now you don't do it. You just get on the volume, get the green screens out. You reshoot it. You do it in, you know, tights or medium shots where you can really hone in, and the background can be kind of really incidental. It doesn't need to be super crisp or clean. Um, so what does that ultimately mean for the process? Is it so much possibility and so much opportunity? But is it all good? Like there's the, the opportunity to do so much more than you used to be able to do, both in the moment. And after the fact, is it actually good or does it unsettle filmmakers? Does it sway them? Does it create doubt in their mind? And you get the feeling like way back when, I'm going to talk about the first Ghostbusters in a moment, your script had to be tight, had to be sound, your scheduling had to be spot on. You know, making a film was like going to war, you had to be completely dialed into the process. What do we need to get? How do we need to get it? You need it to work efficiently. You need it to work um, with such a clear mind, clear objectives. Whereas now, you don't have to. You can kind of start, and then as you go, you can kind of make it up as you go along because so much of what you're doing is going to be altered after the fact. It can be altered. We can figure it out later. We can kick the can down the road. So what you get is a situation whereby films get rushed into production, and the studio's priority is that It can't be so bad that it is dismissed out of hand so quickly. It has to survive that press screening. The first press reactions have to be decent enough and then it has to survive the Friday and the Saturday where the early adopters go and see the movie then get on Twitter themselves and do a stupid podcast like this and they recommend it to people who might be thinking about going to see it. So it has to be okay it has to be just fine. It has to be not offensively bad that it can be torn apart and ripped to shreds on a message board or in 280 characters on Twitter. And I just wonder, as a consequence of that, do they just think things think about things for too long? Rather than we've got to get everything locked in before we start rolling. No, you know, if we, can, we can get everything locked in after. We can get everything locked in months after we finish rolling. We can get everything locked in 10 days before we print the film. So I I just don't know if that's necessarily good. don't know if that helps people. That makes things, you know, flow. So in terms of context, I I found myself walking in the cinema as a fan of Ghostbusters because they're good movies, but not like some crazy, you know, devotee. And I found myself thinking, why does this property mean so much? There's one excellent film. There's one alright film, you know, the second one, and there's one, you know, pretty poor film, which was the, the 2016 reboot, in 37 years, there's three films in 37 years and a video game, one of them's excellent, one of them's okay, one of them's not very good, so why does it mean so much? Probably because it's a good idea, yeah, it's a good idea for a film, Then you're kind of looking at it going, jeez, are three films in 37 years really doing this idea justice? And that's what the studio thinks. And further than that, it's because the first one is a textbook example of flawless filmmaking. And it's because of this, how good the first one is, that it became a series that mattered to a lot of people, when it probably could have and probably should have just been a one and done. We've made one brilliant film, it's its own self-contained little thing, great adventure, closes with our heroes being heroes, our normal Joes. Overcome extraordinary circumstances and they've won the day. But because it's that rare example of a perfect film, can we do more? Geez, the idea is good, the film looks good, the cast is great, the cast is perfectly balanced. Each actor realizes every aspect of their character impeccably, and further, their chemistry is just flawless. You know, the performances <coughs> across the board, the performances across the board in that first Ghostbusters film are outstanding. There is not a bad performance in the film. In the film, it is absolutely brilliant. Further to that, further to what I said earlier, the script is brilliant. It is watertight. Just about every joke lands. I actually can't think of a gag in the film, big or small, throwaway or set-up, that doesn't hit the mark. I mean, you think about stuff that often gets overlooked or forgotten is... You know, Rick Moranis as Lewis Tully when he's holding his accountant, and he's holding the party in his apartment, and he's running through each of his guests' like financial situations. I think there's one where he's like, um, "Meet you know such and such." Uh, he's drawing salary from a deferred bonus. Um, yeah, they, he owns a, someone owns a carpet store that's in receivership. You know, but he goes, i oh, He's going to be okay. He's going to be okay," and that's his his method of coping and his character is just so perfectly realized in that moment you know exactly who this guy is he's a bit awkward he's a bit strange but he's well-meaning he's a nice guy you know and it's brilliant that that little scene where he's yeah he's talking about people's financial situations is just absolutely outstanding um like i say, the characters are brilliant the plotting and the pacing i talk about pacing a lot i realize but it's fantastic there is no fat on the bone Every element feeds seamlessly into the one before and sets up the one that's coming. It is absolutely fantastic. That's why it's so loved, because it's brilliant. The second one gets a bad rap, and because basically it's the same film. Something that immediately means that it can't be either its own film or better than the first one. But it's still got some phenomenal moments in it, like the setup where we catch up with where they all are. Vinkman's got that sort of like terrible TV show. Venkman, when he's going through Dana's apartment, is fantastic. Um, you know, the police, when they're digging into the street to get into the sewer in the old train station with the ewes. You know, the, the, um, Ackroyd and, and Ramos sort of going back and forth with the police and then Bill Murray turns up. The courtroom scene is fantastic where Lewis is defending them but Venkman's feeding him lines. In fact, Bill Murray, the film gets a bad rap. Bill Murray is brilliant. For a guy that was a bit of a holdout to do all these sort of films, he turns up and he is awesome. In Ghostbusters too, but it's the same film, like to its detriment. You know, I'm sure there are other examples, but you know, maybe before that, I should say, <clears throat> like, you know, stuff like Jaws, and since then we've had like you know, the Home Alone films, Die Hard 2 the Hangover movies. There's lots of examples now, but come 1989, I wonder if it was a really early example of a film, maybe the first major case of a film, you know. Having a sequel that was pretty much the same movie. You've got an idea and a property so sprawling and replete with creative prime possibilities and outrageously funny actors dealing with supernatural paranormal forces you just make the same movie? It's just frustrating, it's just a missed opportunity. You know, and as I spoke about read the Matrix, like, these properties aren't some kind of holy text, you know, it's not like we're adapting the the Quran or the Bible. It's like a Ghostbusters film, you know, wasn't great. In the end, you walk out of that second one. Well, in the grand scheme of things, it's not the end of the world, but it's just a missed opportunity to go, we're going to get them all together, the first one was great, and we're just going to make the same movie again. We're going to drop in and out some names and some elements, but it's the same film, it's the same beats, it's in the same order. You're like, ah. Oh. And nowadays, films, film audiences are a bit maybe more sophisticated. There are more films, more options, and we're a bit more sort of attuned to that. Maybe we take it a bit more a bit more personally, funnily enough. But in the aftermath of that, (coughs) you know, efforts to get a third film off the ground, made for one of the, the longest running Will They Won't They sagas in Hollywood. Bill Murray was allegedly the holdout for a long time. Um there was some stuff about he would only come back if he was a ghost, which is ironic given what happens in this film. They did the video game in 2009, which is seen by many people to be a kind of in-continuity sequel. It's like the third film, because it has all the original cast returned to do their voices. Speaking of retreading things, Evo Shandor, as I said earlier, is the bad guy in the game. Hmm. Probably can move on from that, maybe, if you're prepared to. Um, In 2014, an interesting... Aspect of the Sony email hack, which I spoke about last week, was the reveal that Channing Tatum had contacted Amy Pascal and suggested he and Chris Pratt do a Ghostbusters film. The Russo brothers, fresh off uh, directing the Winter Soldier, were going to, to produce it. I think was the plan at that point in time. Um, this film would run alongside the Paul Feig directed all female Ghostbusters film and lead to a team up. Obviously, didn't get off the ground. Didn't end up happening. They do make the female Ghostbusters in twenty sixteen with Paul Feig at the helm and it's it was just a bad idea. The legacy sequel idea isn't a bad idea. A new generation take on the Ghostbusters mantle with the original cast franchising the rights to them or passing them the baton. It's not a bad idea. But Sony had clearly had enough of cajoling come twenty fifteen, you know, when the film goes into really proper production, and they move ahead with the soft remake and the reboot, blah blah which is sort of like the complete inverse of the original movie. It's a weird thing actually because Paul Feig had spoken initially about wanting it to be dark and scary according to these leaks he wanted you know Peter Dinklage to be the main villain of the movie and somewhere along the line enough people got cold enough feet to go no nah, we don't want to do that. We want it to be a really accessible family sort of fun film, really colorful. That's why it's really oversaturated and ugh. And it's just Everything that the first film was, this film is not. It's not tight. It's not written well. Structured poorly. The dynamic and the balance between the cast is non-existent. The film is way too long. And yes, of course, it was targeted by idiots who tried to take the film down based on ludicrous, nonsensical, rubbish uh, reasons. The four leads are all very funny. Liz McCarthy's been in some great films. She worked really well with Paul Feig in stuff like Spy, um, which is excellent. You know, um, Kate McKinnon's just brilliant on Saturday Night Live and has been for a very, very long time. Uh, Kristen Wiig, the same. She's done some really great stuff and shown herself to be both a very funny actress, a very capable actress. Um, and then Leslie Jones similarly hasn't done as many films, but on Saturday Night Live's had a really good run, not on the show anymore, but had a good run on Saturday Night Live and showed that she just needed the opportunity to be in a film. So the actors weren't the problem at all. It was the way that they'd framed the film was just a bad idea. Yes, it got torpedoed by some targeted crap, but it was just shit. If it was good, it would have survived all that. People would have gone to see it and gone, it's actually not a bad film. You tried to to sink it, but it's going to float because it's good. But it wasn't good. That's why it sunk. and one of the interesting aspects of this all is the continued involvement of Dan Aykroyd. Now, people may or may not know this, but Aykroyd is like, he's a weird dude. He has that crystal skull vodka, and he believes in these crazy alien and paranormal theories. Like, he dead said, believes in that stuff. He is Ray Stantz. So the first film is very much his child, albeit slightly or somewhat diluted or straightened up by... Harold Ramis or so the legend goes is that Ramis was really influential in just keeping that film on the straight and narrow and weeding out some of the the more over the top paranormal elements that were going to be a bit confusing or a bit out there but once you get to like sequel and then maybe another sequel, once you get to the point where the film is a franchise and there is heaps of money to be made by doing more films mind the depths of Dan Aykroyd's crazy mind. The film is called Ghostbusters. So make it weird. Open up portals and window, windows into dark dimensions. Do You saw how much people like that What If episode with Doctor Strange and this multiverse stuff they're leaning into now. Be ahead of the game and lean into this crazy stuff. And you know what? If it doesn't work as well as the original, at least it's different, at least it's new, at least you've swung for the fences. At least you've tapped into or tried to tap into how out there the property can be. The possibilities, the storytelling possibilities are endless because you're 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 working in this fantastical realm. So do that. Just go for it. So with regard to this film, we'll go through the chicken salads first, I suppose. There are some issues with structure and storytelling, which maybe soft chicken salads, maybe chicken shits. We'll get to that later. But in terms of chicken salads, I really like the cold open of the film. There are shadows of the first film. You know, it's a bit unsettling, it's foreboding, it gives us the right tone right from the off. It's actually a little bit scary in the right kind of way, but importantly, it gives the film a kick-along right from the off. You know, I spoke a little while ago, I'm not sure in what review it was, about starting films with an explosion. You know, sometimes that's literal. It's like like Die Hard with a Vengeance, for instance. Die Hard with a Vengeance starts with an explosion. You're getting, you know, it's a hot summer day in New York and you're cutting cut through the city and the throng and the humanity and then a big explosion goes off. And that's sort of like the inciting incident introduces a challenging idea or an occurrence. It, it can be a literal explosion or it can be this idea. So in the first one it was the the librarian you know, at the New York Public Library and she's walking around and she's being... Tormented by a ghost. That's the audience's introduction to this film, that's the audience's introduction to the world. And it's great. Because it tells us from the off, no bullshit, this is real. Who's gonna handle this? And we know who it is, it's the Ghostbusters, but it's a really this is a really strong start. Basically, we pick up um in the present day and a figure who we don't ever quite get a great look at, but we can deign that it's Egon Spengler is racing this spirit back to this farmhouse where he's attempting to trap it. So he's attempting to keep this evil force, this evil figure at bay, and he's, to do that he needs to trap it. Um, so he goes back to his farmhouse, the the trap that he's laid misfires, so he goes into the house where he eventually sets up this sort of showdown where, yes, he does trap. Um, it ends up being like Zool, I think. I can't remember the name of the other dog, but he ends up trapping... Um, Zul, you know, the hound of hell, goes as Minion, but at the cost of his life. The film goes into its next sequence, introducing his family. His family live in Chicago, a bit down on their luck, no money, being kicked out of their apartment. They're told that Egon's died or the grandfather's died. They've got to go out to Oklahoma to sign some papers to settle his accounts, maybe sell the farm, make some money, get the hell out of there. So that it's a good start. We go from... You know these these films often have that in in the second one it was the the goose, you know um, affecting Dana's uh, stroller um, and taking control of that. So there's some paranormal incident. You know, in, in um, 2016, Ghostbusters, same sort of thing. It was a, basically a rip off of the the librarian scene. So this is a bit different. It's 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 a different take on that, but it's the same idea that we need to hit the ground running and we need to get some momentum behind us to get the audience interested and get the audience sort of heart rate going a little bit because then they're prepared to have a relax and swallow some exposition if we start off with a scene that has a bit more action in it so it was quite good in that regard but it was a really good start i really enjoyed that cold open the kids so they're the central characters they're the ghostbusters even if not in name casting kids is dangerous especially when they're going to carry so much of a film and yeah, it's a fraud with danger, putting kids at the centre, you know. Not every young cast that you bring together is E.T. or, um, you know, more recently, Super 8, which is, like, I remember seeing Super 8 and just thinking, Jesus, these, like, these kids are good. Wow. Casting was perfect. The kids are just fantastic. Usually they can be annoying, whether it be performance or characterization, or they can be obnoxious, and you're like, geez, these kids are great. Helped by a very good script. Um, Their repartee and their dynamic was excellent. But here, you've got McKenna Grace, who is effectively the lead of the film. Um, And she's great. She's sort of the Elliot, if we're using E.T. as an example of the film. And she carries it absolutely flawlessly. She's brilliant. Um, She's sort of the the avatar for Egon, his granddaughter, who is very science-minded, very capable. Um, They do the smart kids thing a lot in films, and sometimes it is annoying. But, but he or she's she's really, really good. Um, she's sort of a bit young Sheldony at times, which I don't know is a touch point for them, but certainly a way of saying she's not your average kid. She's a bit more capable of that. Finn Wolfhard plays her brother. Seems to be the go-to guy when you're doing retro 80s-infused stuff. And he's fine. He's good. Um, the young guy that plays this kid, sort of the more direct comic relief. He's sort of the... Not the... Um, not the Venkman avatar but he's sort of the comic relief character a kid called podcast um and he's a friend of mckenna grace's phoebe um he's played by logan kim he gets to do a bit some pretty fun stuff he gets to be the more comedic foil um, amongst the group of kids he's quite good Uh, paul rudd he's all right he's the the adult audience avatar if you will he's like the audience, or particularly the audience of a certain age, he's the guy who knows about the events of the previous films, particularly the first film, and can serve as a bit of exposition for the characters um, more than perhaps the audience. The audience get a refresher by virtue of his his uh, dialogue at times, but particularly the young kids, they get introduced to what a Ghostbuster is, what the equipment is, what had happened in the past. Um, and he's fine. He has some nice little moments here and there. Um, Carrie Coon she plays Phoebe's mum, and she's just i think she's just a bit let down by the material she does the best with what what she's given, but her characterization as this disenfranchised mum I don't know it's that weird thing of she feels put out by ego on her father for leaving her, and she doesn't know him, and she she's real hard up about it, which is fine, it's understandable as a beat. But sometimes when that plays out, I get a bit frustrated because we all know that that's not what Egon is. So the the audience knows watching that all the things you're saying about your dad and the way you feel about him is fine based on what you know, but we know more than you. We know that he's not a bad guy and he didn't do it because he didn't love you. Like We know that because we know more about him than you do. So sometimes when you watch that play out, it can be a bit, I don't know, it can be a bit frustrating because you know that the turn's coming, you know that the reveal's coming, the revelation that he was actually a nice guy. It's coming. Because we know more than you. Like, think about something like Predator. The first Predator works because the film doesn't show you the Predator until it shows the audience, until it shows the character of the Predator. We know something's out there, we know it's a being and it's hunting them down and we know that there's danger. But we're interested because we don't get to see it until they do. And it's brilliant. And it's the reason why the other ones don't work as well because they spend every film following the same beat in those Predator movies or even Aliens. The audience is wise to the reveal because we've already seen it. So you can't keep doing the, oh, what is it? What are we going after? The pro- oh, the protagonist doesn't know. Oh, what are we dealing with? Well, we know. You can only pull that trick when we don't know. So flip the script. When you're making these Predator movies, the, the idea I've long thought would work for a Predator film, they're doing a new one actually called it's called Skulls or something, is it called? Maybe they've changed it. I think it's coming direct to Screaming, streaming, which isn't a great endorsement, but the general idea is I think it's set in like... Um, Native American, like you know, hundreds, hundreds of years ago, and it's got this Native American tribe sort of going up against a predator, which is a, again, at least it's a, at least it's a new take. But my concept for a long, long time was have the predators come to Earth on one of their game hunts, as they do every however often is it hundred years? I think is is what they said in Alien versus Predator, but have them come to Earth and have the title of the film refer to the human beings. So there's some fucking military installation that picks up the ship's signature entering our galaxy. They match it with that from Guatemala in eighty seven and Los Angeles in I think it was ninety seven, and they and you know Antarctica in two thousand and four or whatever, and they recognize this ship and they recognize where it lands. And the idea is that human beings, a team of human beings, goes out to engage and intercept and trap one of these predators. So the idea is that. You flip the script. We know what we're dealing with. We know what they do. We've reverse-engineered technology from our skirmishes with them to capture them. That's the plot of the film. You can't keep doing the movie where the the protagonist doesn't know what the predator is because you spend 45 fucking minutes just wasting everyone's time for a reveal that is for them, not the audience. That John McTiernan reveal in the first one is brilliant because it's the first look we get at it. I've spoken about Ghostbusters... (laughs) I know, but I'm now speaking about Predator. But that's the point. The point is this reveal of Egon being a nice guy. It's like, well, we know it's coming because we know he's a nice guy. And we know that he's there to try to do the right thing by the world. So Carrie Coon, like I said, does the best with what she's given, but it is a bit of a thankless task because she's she's Sisyphus. She's pushing the rock up the hill. We we know that what's coming is going to change her perspective but just her perspective, because we don't have any reason to think how she thinks. So that was, like I said, dis- disappointing for her. The actual world that the film's set in, I kind of like the change of scenery, that small-town Americana, and it's certainly one way of kind of hoodwinking the audience into not realising they're watching the same thing that they kind of have already. And at times it was really cool, like it felt felt like a bit of a retro, sort of old-school, you know, there were sequences in this diner, in town very small sequences but which sort of felt like that summer holidays high school coming of age film like more modern times something like an adventure land which was directed by greg Matola. or even going way way back lots of examples but like american graffiti so i really liked that i really liked that they went it's not set in new york we're not doing that again we're not doing big landmarks Set it in this small midwestern town what's the reason for bringing them there? We're going to tell you, blah, blah, blah. I kind of like that. It gave it a different look and feel, which was nice. Now, this is a very, very soft chicken salad. Member Berries. You remember that? Look, it was a couple of years ago now. it's like 2016 or 17. Maybe even earlier. But that brilliant piece of satire and commentary from the South Park guys about the Member Berries, it's actually, it's only gotten worse because stuff like The Force Awakens makes heaps of money and then all these studios think we can do that. We can do that as well. We've got properties that we've got properties that people know about. We can we can reskin them, and we can give them a fresh coat of paint, and uh, we can we can put them out, and we can take some of that money. So without wanting to spoil anything, I think people kind of get the gist: is that you know, the legacy characters they all appear at the end, including Egon as a as a force ghost, if you will, but as a ghost. Um, Harold Ramis, obviously, he passed away in 2014, I want to say, which is very sad. Um, But all the legacy characters appear. Bill Murray is Bill Murray, and when he cares enough about what he's doing, he's absolutely still got it. And that's just what we want, isn't it? Like I compare it to Harrison Ford. We just want you to be likeable. Just give us a glimpse of the performer you used to be And we'll be happy. You know, Harrison Ford does all these films where he's a grumpy, crotchety old man. And you're like, I know that that's probably what you are in real life. But if you just be Harrison Ford and show some charisma, show some fucking, some comedic timing, you can't be the dashing Indiana Jones style, you know, hero that you used to be, no problems at all. But just be Harrison Ford. You're a fucking movie star that generations of filmgoers loved don't be a grumpy, crotchety killjoy in every fucking film you make. That film, was it Morning Glory? Was that what, with Rachel McAdams? They just made the wrong friggin' movie where this guy was a, just a massive dick for too long, for too much of the film. He was a dick. And it was just frustrating. And then at the very end, he becomes this likable guy, like at the very end of the movie. And you're thinking, why didn't you give us an hour of this? You give us, like, five minutes of this guy being, like, nice, likeable, being the Harrison Ford we've bought a ticket to see. Ugh, dumb. Dumb, dumb. I'm not, I've am already rewritten Predator. I'm not here to rewrite Morning Glory. But Bill Murray's really good. He's great. You know, Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd's all right. Um, Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson turns up, obviously, as Winston and has a little bit of stuff after the fact, which may or may not make sense. Setting up more films, I don't know. Um... The Harold Ramis thing, obviously, as we said, gets gets a really integral sort of the heart of the film flows through him, and what he's been trying to do, his relationship with his family, how he's sort of sacrificed himself and his life and his relationships is, is nice. Um, and again, keeps telling us that your daughter's hard up on him, but we know that he's been doing the right thing by everyone. Um is really good. You know, as said Annie Potts has a has a small role at the start, which is sort of really nice where she turns up and sort of alludes to that maybe there was something between her and Egon at a at a time or at a point in time. Um so it was good to see her again. Because um, Janine, she's like she's great. Obviously in, in the first one she's really, really good. Um with the Harold Ramis thing, it is a really interesting conversation about like using The digital likeness of the deceased. It's that line in Jurassic Park, you know. They said, um, "Just because you could, you never stop to ask if you should." You're talking about just because you can clone dinosaurs, you've never, you haven't actually, actually have haven't answered the question: Should we be doing it? Is it right? Is it ethical? And the digital acting stuff is really. You know, it first came to prominence in, in Rogue One where they had um, Peter Cushing as Tarkin. Um, and he was performed by another actor and then they put um, Cushing's face, motion tracked it, and put Cushing's face over it. And he was, the guy was doing an impersonation and a voice and then we had Leia at the end because obviously um, Carrie Fisher hadn't died at that point but they would do it in, in Rise of Skywalker. And they would reuse old footage of her and... It's a really interesting, tricky situation because you're using that person's appearance but you're not using their performance. You're not giving them agency over the most important part of the whole process which is the performance. Just the empty vessel of a face is one thing. But, like, say for instance, Harold Ramis, the Egon doesn't talk like during the film, he doesn't talk. They don't do an impression of him. He does a lot of knowing, doe-eyed looks doesn't doesn't speak and you're kind of like well that's a fucking pretty key part of the performance delivering dialogue and you've just kind of readily admitted no no we don't want to be doing that because we that's probably crossing the line you're like no i think crossing the line is actually recreating the guy on screen digitally he's dead that's probably crossing the line but we do it because it's a, a little it's a nice wink to the camera that we can't he can't turn up with his mates because he's dead, but we can bring him back because it's Ghostbusters, and I don't know if the workaround is... I don't know if it's good enough. I don't know if it's a good enough excuse. Just because you can, doesn't mean that you should. And then lastly, you know, on Egon, as a ghost, shouldn't he have been sucked into the traps that they're using to trap Gozer and Zul and, and whatnot? Like, wouldn't that have been a real touching moment if he comes out to help them? He comes out to help the help the old go- Ghostbusters and his family you know, fight the last fight. And he comes out to to aid them in their battle. But then they realize, obviously, a consequence of their victory will be saying goodbye to him once and for all because they're going to have to trap him with this being for eternity. Like it's a really melancholy kind of heartbreaking moment but his friends and family all get a sense of closure because they get to see him and they get to realise that he was just trying to do the best by them and and help the world but it's all too fleeting because they realise he actually has to go I thought yeah wouldn't that have been really you know a bit like the T-800 giving the thumbs up as he sinks into the molten goo I my my path in this story is to say goodbye is to leave at the close I don't know maybe I've missed something there but I thought shouldn't he be sucked into these ghost traps because he's a ghost Hmm. something worth thinking about. Um, You had the car reveal which is obviously the Ecto-1 is back in it and I wondered sort of funny is that it was like a metaphor for the property this Ecto-1 sitting in a barn or mothballed idle in a state of disrepair But with a bit of love and a bit of attention, if you show it some reverence, it could still serve a purpose or have a utility. And more to the point, it actually has a few new bells and whistles that it can show us. So I kind of wondered, yeah, maybe I'm thinking about it too much, but is the Ecto-1 and how it's presented a metaphor for the Ghostbusters property? maybe. And then, you know, with all the other callbacks, some of them are fine, some of them aren't. Get the fire, fire pole... In Egon's house, down into this hidden kind of basement area, um, like a little lab. You've got the jumpsuits. You know, he's got he's been collecting spores and funguses, which was a throwaway line. He you know, there's a, there's a close up of a Twinkie in a in a dash, crunch bars in his pocket. That's member berries. Like we're meant to feel something for props or inanimate objects. You know, which were once upon a time they were just a nice throwaway line or moment. In a better film, like for instance, there was a fire pole in the first one because their HQ was a an abandoned firehouse. Like it wasn't there to be marketed; it was just an element of the set, which was just these guys aren't firefighters. Uh, and it was just a bit silly. But when now we're meant to feel something when oh there's a fire pole, oh like in the first one, aren't oh, like? So the first one was on a movie about a fucking fire pole. Like, just relax. You know, the Twinkie thing was when he used it as a metric to just how big this paranormal event would be. It would be the size, you know. Think of this Twinkie as ten thousand times its size. I'm not meant to. Am I meant to feel something when you open a dash? You know, open a glove box and there's a Twinkie in there. That's. Oh, it's just the worst kind of member berry. Some of the other stuff, if it's character building or really like a nice little throwback is fine, but stuff like that is like, don't do it. Stone, don't do it. Um, the other callback which was nice and which was weaved into the plot in a really nice way was the old Ghostbusters TV ad, which was actually kind of a call to help. You know, McKenna Grace is shown it, and there's the phone number and she rings it and it's Razor Cult Bookshop. But it was a really cool little kind of I use the word meta in the Ratrix. It was a really fun kind of little think of, you know, think around of how do we get the old Ghostbusters back involved and the ad playing within this world is a nice is a nice kind of a callback, it's a nice use of old material, but it's actually functioning too as a call to help. And saying call us. That's you know, provoking the character interaction. So that was nice. I like that. Um in, in terms of the chicken shits, I don't want to get too negative or too bogged down because ultimately, as I said when I was speaking about The Matrix, these films aren't masquerading as something more important or acting as though they've got something more important to say than they really do. They just want to entertain us for a couple of hours. Um, so if it doesn't measure up or if it's not as good as you thought it could be or might be or hoped it would be, it's not the end of the world. you know. And, and largely, as ho-hum as elements of this film is... It does entertain us for a couple of hours. But it is just a bit familiar. Like I spoke earlier about you've got so many possibilities to make sequels to these films in this world using so many crazy zany out there you know characters like Indiana Jones. It's like don't just hunt the same artifact in every film. There's so many crazy artifacts or places from lore and legend that you can go and look into and the same thing for Ghostbusters. Stop doing Goza. Stop doing Zool, Gatekeepers, Keymasters. And the writing credit here is real crucial. Like the 2016 Ghostbusters, there's a credit at the end of the film that obviously per the WGA, the, the Writing Guild of America, had to be awarded based on the 1984 film. It says that, like the 2016 one did, because they're so structurally similar and they share so many character and plot elements that you actually have to credit the other film as if you're remaking it. Like, it's an, it gets buried in the credits a bit in the sense that people probably aren't paying attention to it, but it's really important to note that they have to credit 1984 Ghostbusters. In the script, like, they have to credit it because it's so familiar, and in a funny way, this sort of makes me yearn for a simpler time where films weren't made to be franchises. They'd tell a story, they'd finish telling that story, the credits would roll, And you may or may not get another movie. But the movie you just saw, hopefully, was really good. And you really liked it. And that was the case with the first Ghostbusters. And, like, you know, I'd always just thought that Gozer and Zool, and they were just one of many various dangerous phenomenon out there in the broader universe or parallel dimensions or the like. So, like, it's a new film, tell a different story with a different thread with a different setup don't just keep doing the same set pieces the same plot elements the same threats familiar can be good because it can be comforting and but so can something that's new something that's new can be exciting so it's like if you're going to do another one ever again they will whatever that is something new please different threats, a different paranormal entity, something else, because you've done this kind of... You've done this kind of thing now too many times in games and the like. Um, there's another sequence here. There's uh, like... if <coughs> You've seen the marketing material, the mini stay-puffed marshmallows. And it's, it's it's a chicken shit because it's modern Hollywood. Like, it's classic Disney filmmaking. We need a cute, marketable sidekick. Animated film. The Disney animated films have done it forever. Now they've got the... Usually it's a like, a like an animal, you know, like, like Aladdin's got a boo, you know, the little monkey, or even the, the magic carpet. Um, so we've got to get the cute little marketable sidekick that we can turn into toys or, you know, plush figures, etc. And lately it's, it's really seeped into, like, mainstream blockbuster filmmaking. You know, you got a lot of it's Disney, but you've got Baby Groot, so Baby Groot was this runaway success, and then all of a sudden every film needs a baby Groot. So you got, you know, BB8 in Force Awakens, you had Porgs, you know, the little kind of puffin' things in the next one. Even like the Fantastic Peace series, um, you know, the spin-off of Harry Potter had that. They had a little praying mantis thingo that would go with um uh what was his name? Newt, played by um what's his name? Eddie Jeez, he's not very good in that movie. That's why I can't remember his name. But you've got these things called Nifflers as well, which is the same thing, these little comic relief CGI sidekicks, which pop up every now and again, doing their own sort of little thing. Um, It also felt a bit gremlins-y, in a way, these little mini Stay Puft marshmallows, sort of not not even wreaking havoc, because they're harmless enough, but they're just sort of carrying on inside a Walmart. And I'm not sure if it totally makes sense in the story either. Again, I'm thinking about this way too much, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, we're not meant to be doing that. But in the first one, Gozer became the Marshmallow Man because it it asked the Ghostbusters to um, choose the form of your destructor, and the first thing that popped into their heads, they Gozer would become that entity. And obviously, Ray thought of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, so it became this giant marshmallow. It's really clever. It's great. But why in this film are there consumable bags of marshmallows animating into miniature marshmallow men? I mean, is it just a, is it a paranormal consequence? Of, I'm probably thinking about it way too much. But I was, I was sitting there thinking, these are cute little marketable things that can get turned into toys and plush figures and Funko Pops, and that's great. But what are they actually doing for the movie? They give us a cute little sequence... Where they're unwittingly, very gremlins y, where they're unwittingly like walking on hot plates and melting or turning each other into s'mores or jumping into a blender. And like it's, it's fun, creative filmmaking and it looks all right, plays out okay, but within the confines of the law of the picture you're making, does it actually make sense? I don't know. I feel like it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one. You know, I've spoken about it being a bit too familiar and playing out, you know, in the same beats and the same fashion and, and the like. The other one that I hate, I hate it when films do this with a passion. You can do it in the past. If you're making a period film, you can do it in the past It's because you, you want to tell us exactly where your film takes place and sometimes that's important culturally or geographically or architecturally. It's important to say this film takes place in 1925... So it 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 places you in that time and place. If you're making a film set in the present, don't mention the year. It's a small thing, but it is a massive frustration nonetheless. Don't put the year in your film that you're telling, like, oh, we released here, so it's 2021. Probably don't do it for the future either. Just say it's in the future, it's 200 years in the future or whatever, because then you get you know, back to the future too, happened in 2015 which at the time of release was you know 26 years in the future well eventually you're going to get there and then all of a sudden your film is dated just say it's in the future back to the future is a bad example it's working on the timeline i know that but here the film tells us that oh it takes place in 2021 film came out here on january 1 2022 so it's already old Sitting in the cinema watching it on an opening day, I realise it's come out elsewhere earlier than this, but we're sitting in the cinema watching this film say it's taking place in twenty twenty one in twenty twenty two. And it's just it's a frustration and it ultimately shouldn't matter but it just takes you out of the movie, just dates the movie immediately. You don't need to say when it took takes place. Takes place in present day. Whether you watch the film in five years' time, it's present day, or in ten years' time, or in six weeks' time, it's present day, and it works just fine. You Have its relationship with what happened in the past. Just mentioned 1984. In 1984, in New York, events of the first one, perfect. Um, so ultimately, there. That's been a, a chat, obviously, about Ghostbusters Afterlife. You know what was good, what I liked. Um, some frustrations with the film, perhaps. Maybe frustrations is too strong a word but in the end like it's fine it is a watchable movie um it it is not necessarily a worthwhile addition to the ghostbusters canon but it's not a disgraceful addition to the canon um you know it sits alongside the other film um the second one particularly you know quite well which i said i think probably gets a bad rap a lot of the time but at the end of the day ghostbusters afterlife it is a solid watch it's well enough made Um, you can see that it is made with love you can see the legacy you know roles of people in front and behind the camera really do love the material and we're really striving to make a film that would please enough people to potentially make more films Um, whether it does that or not i'm not sure but at the end of the day it's a ghostbusters film we don't need to get too wrapped up in in what it does wrong as such because um, it does enough, right, to be enjoyable enough for the, the two-odd hours that it's uh, in front of you. So if you do have the opportunity to see it, um, I, I can recommend it, You know, particularly if you're a fan of the other ones, particularly if you've got a bit of familiarity with the other ones. I think that's important because this film does lean into a fair bit of that established lore. So you know, people who don't know a lot about or can't remember much about the other ones, particularly the first one, it is like seeing a whole new movie for them. It would potentially be a bit sort of jarring as to kind of what's going on and who these people are and why am I meant to care about them. But if you do have that relationship with the old ones, um, it's worth your time checking out, I think. And particularly now, I mean, there's not a lot of stuff coming out just at the moment. and um, This is just a bit of comfort food, familiar. We know it. We know what to expect from it. It kind of gives you that. Um, So thanks so much for listening in. Um, Again, uh, if you have seen the film... If you've enjoyed Ghostbusters in the past, if you've got any thoughts or theories on them, um, definitely do get in touch. I really do appreciate it when people do that. And if, you, if you're enjoying kind of what I'm doing um, and you would like some more, i am kind of done a few of them over the last couple of weeks. I'm sort of trying to get into a bit of a rhythm of of turning them out as quickly as I can, just creatively more than anything else. Definitely get in touch. Um, we'd love to hear from you. So Will and I will be back in the next week or two to do another episode of the Weekly Watch List where we'll go over what we've watched and seen and enjoyed since we last recorded. Until then, stay safe. We'll catch you then.